Amen. Pressing on toward the prize, the upward call of God in Christ. That is such a precious reminder for those of us who have life in Christ that that is our duty, that is our goal, that is our great joy to press on, to see and to know the Savior. If you have a Bible open with me, please, to the book of Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 3 will be in verses 11 through 13 this morning, and the title of the message today is The Return of the King. The Return of the King. You may recall that we, we discussed last time how, how Peter has this writing style where he'll take a chapter and, and he focuses on one overarching topic, but he hits at it from these completely different angles. And, angles. and so that's what he's doing here in chapter 3. He's looking at the return of Christ and He's already talked about in verses 1 through 7 how the church must be courageous in those last days because mockers and scoffers will come and they will rise up against the proclamation of the truth and we must stand firm. We must look to this return of Christ. We looked last week at the return of Christ from God's perspective, from the the idea that God is eternal and that He is patient and that He is reserving judgment for those who die apart from Christ. And so we know that Christ's return is seen from the eternal perspective of God. And this morning, then, we look at this idea of the return of Christ from the perspective of seeing Christ as the coming King, the coming King who brings with Him a kingdom of righteousness. We see that His return is imminent, and in His return we have great hope because what He brings with Him is an end to all the sin, an end to all the suffering and hardship and everything that is brought about by sin because with Christ comes a kingdom of righteousness. This passage is sobering. This third chapter, all of Second Peter is sobering as we think about the judgment that is to come, but we should also look at this passage and and all of Scripture, even these difficult passages of Scripture, we look to them with great hope because we know that this world is not our home and, and even when we consider the coming judgment, we know that we who are in Christ are delivered. If you are in Christ, there is no condemnation because you're washed in His blood. You're redeemed by His sacrifice. So let's read our text And let the Lord in his word show us this great hope and how we are to strive and how we are to work in light of this hope. So please stand with me, if you will, in honor of the reading of God's word. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. This is holy and inerrant inspired scripture. This is God's word to us, his people. The Lord says as follows. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is God's word. May he write it upon our hearts and glorify his name at its reading. You may be seated. Now let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father, you are most high, most glorious, ruling and reigning supremely from the beginning of time to the end of time. Lord, you are eternal. You always have reigned. You always will reign. You are on the throne, majestic in glory and holiness. Lord God, you are worthy of all honor and all glory and all praise. 
Lord, our desire as we're gathered today is that we would indeed give honor and glory and praise to your name. Our desire is that we would worship you in the spirit and in the truth. Lord, our desire is that you would show us Christ through your word. Lord, our prayer is that you would glorify yourself by conforming us to the image of your Son, by writing your word upon our hearts and through the powerful working of your Holy Spirit, that you would bring us to repentance for where we fall short, that you would press us on where we need to be encouraged, that you would exhort us where we miss the mark. Lord, would you sanctify us in the truth, for your word is truth. Lord, as we seek to study your word and learn from it and and worship you as we do that, we know that the only way that that's possible is if your spirit would come and open and enlighten and illuminate our eyes. God, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are humble and soft and ready and eager to receive and apply the truth. Lord, how we need your word. How we need its correction. How we need its exhortation, how we need its reproof and its rebuke. How we need the encouragement of the truth. Lord, how we sometimes just need to be pushed or even even drug onward as our hearts and our bodies are weary fragile and frail. Lord, how we need to be reminded that there's a coming kingdom where righteousness dwells. There comes in eternity a a day when every tear will be wiped away. Every sorrow will be no more death and sin and pain and suffering and tribulation. They will all be done away with. Lord, how we need that encouragement from your word today. Lord, how we need to be pressed on in holy living and sanctification and zeal for proclaiming the gospel of Christ as we look to that coming day. Lord, we know that those who hope in Christ are called to be pure just as he is pure. Lord God, I pray that you would accomplish that exact work, that purifying work in us today through your word. Lord, I pray that the communication of your word would be clear and that it would be edifying to each and every one of us. Lord, I pray that your spirit would move powerfully in us and among us. I pray that we would see Christ. I pray that we would be pressed onward so that we indeed press on toward the prize the upward call that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. May he receive all honor and glory and praise in his church forever and ever. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So perhaps the the best way to, to briefly summarize the text before us is to understand it almost as a transition. Peter is going from a warning to an exhortation, from a warning to encouragement, from fearful words to hopeful words. When we think about the return of Christ, 
we encounter two realities. We encounter the two realities that Christ comes back in judgment and that he comes back to fulfill the hope of those who are in him. That's the two realities. That's it. There, there is no third way. There is no other path. You either fall under judgment or you have hope in Christ that you are on the path to that eternal kingdom of righteousness. And so when we think about the return of Christ, it's those two realities that we encounter. Both of the previous passages that we've looked at in 2 Peter 3 have dealt with one of those realities, the coming judgment of Christ, where he will destroy the heavens and the earth and will bring with him a new earth, and that he will create and bring new heavens. And so we've dealt with the reality of judgment, and as Peter moves towards closing this letter, we're nearing its end, Peter moves to exhortation. Friends, this is such a picture. This is such a picture of a true shepherd of the Lord. You might be familiar with John Calvin's words. He said that the, the pastor, the shepherd, has two voices, one for gathering the sheep and one for driving away the wolves and the thieves. Peter, in effect, is using those two voices in this chapter. He is driving away and exposing the wolves. He is warning the lost that judgment is to come, and if they don't repent, they will fall under that condemnation. But now he's also gathering the sheep. He is turning his attention to the beloved of Christ and saying, Dear church, press on. Church, know that the coming kingdom of righteousness will come. It will not fail. It is a promise of God. It's really the connection, the, the whole thrust of this passage is that connection to Christ that we are striving toward that kingdom. We are earnestly pressing on knowing that the, the hope of our life in Christ will be fulfilled. In Revelation 21, John saw this vision and, and he wrote, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And really that focuses us in on our, on our central theme, the central idea that we need to consider as we look at this passage. That is the kingdom of righteousness that John saw and wrote of. And he said that it came ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And so as a bride readies for her husband, the church of Jesus Christ must ready, must prepare for her bridegroom. And Peter says we do that by pursuing holy conduct, and godly devotions as we look forward to the coming kingdom of Christ. We must understand, we must see ourselves as the bride of Christ who is washed, who is purified, who is cleansed, and the bride that he will one day present to himself holy and spotless and blameless. And if that is how he is to present us to himself, what is his work in us in this life? Surely it is to sanctify us, to continue washing us, to make us spotless and glorious. And we understand we will never attain that on this side of eternity. But we also understand that that is what we press toward as long as Christ tarries or as long as the Lord gives us life. We want to be presented to our Savior as pure and spotless. The path through this text is not completely linear because verses 11 and 12 kind of have this bookend at the beginning of 11, at the end of 12, and then there's some meat in the middle that we need to look at. And so we'll look at the pending judgment, the present preparation of the Lord, and then the promised kingdom. So there's two future states, the state of judgment, the state of the kingdom of righteousness, and in the middle, that leads us to this singular purpose, the pursuit of holiness. 
So the pending judgment, the pending judgment, the beginning of verse 11 and really the end of verse 12. Since all these things, Peter says, all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for the hastening, the, looking for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Now, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this idea because we've looked extensively at this coming judgment, but I do want to kind of set the stage for, for this, this one state because, again, you have these two future states that Peter writes of. So I want to just briefly look at what he says, what he reminds us of as he writes about this pending judgment. He begins by kind of pointing us back to verse 10, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way. Verse 10 says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. So since all of this is happening, Peter says, because of this, we live in a certain way. So understanding what will happen is necessary to the Christian having a proper understanding and a proper mindset as we press on toward our prize. We can't be blind or, or closed off to understanding that judgment is coming, that this earth is passing away, that none of it will remain. But we must consider it from the perspective of being believers. For in this judgment, we will not be harmed. We will not face this intense heat. We will face intense persecution we will face intense tribulation and struggle and trial and toil, but we will not face this judgment because we're in Christ. He is our shelter. He is our refuge. Peter says, since all of this is going to happen, what type of people should you be? You see, we'll, we'll get to this in a moment. But you see this judgment coming, so how then, Christian, should you live? How you ought to pursue holy conduct and godliness. You know, Scripture commonly uses heat and fire to depict the idea of purification, that idea of, of melting a metal so that you can skim off the impurities, to, to purify that metal. And, and that picture is really shown in its fullest extent here. It's taken to its most extreme measure because what the Lord is saying is um, this is not just a purification where we will melt down the metal and skim off the surface. No, he's going to melt it all down to obliterate it. It's being done away with because the world was cursed when sin entered the world. You know, that, that's one of the interesting things to consider. When God created the heavens and the earth, he said it was good. But then sin entered through the fall of Adam, and the world became cursed. And so the Lord says, I'm doing away with all of it. It will all be burned. The things of this world that you may prioritize, the things of this world that you may cling to, it will all be burned up. That's a sobering reality. You live in light of the fact that everything you see, you look around us, you look at the creation, you look around your home, everything you see will be burned with intense heat. It will be gone. It will be no more. So we pursue that which has eternal value, that which remains. Even the good things of this life, they will not remain. Even the blessings of God's creation that he gives us to enjoy, they will be gone. But what remains is that hope that we have in Christ. That glorious Savior to whom we will one day be called to worship in his perfect presence for the rest of eternity. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, he, he talked about our faith as being refined like this by fire. And he said that our faith is refined and it results in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, this 
fire, this burning of the earth and all of its elements and the heavens and everything going away, it also results in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Friends, we must remember that this world, this life, it's a vapor. It's passing. It's fleeting. It's fading. It's here one moment and gone the next. Psalm 144 verse 4 says, Man is like a mere breath. His days are like a passing shadow. But it's not just it's not just that we are a vapor, but all of creation is like a vapor. So dear friend, hear the exhortation from Scripture to set your mind on heavenly, eternal things. Don't get caught and bound up in temporal things because they won't last. They'll be gone in an instant. So press on towards striving after that which is eternal. Moving forward, we want to look at the present preparation. The present preparation, kind of right there in the middle of verses 11 and 12. And this is really kind of the, the meat of the text. And then we get to this great climax in verse 13. Middle of verse 11 and through the middle of verse 12. Peter says, all these things are going to be destroyed in this way, so what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming day of God? So what sort of people ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness as we look forward to and hasten the coming day of the Lord? You, you hear there, you see there that there's really four exhortations, and really I think they can even be kind of drawn down to, to a pair. To, to, you've got this idea of holy conduct and godliness, and then looking forward to and hastening the return of Christ, the coming day of the Lord. Firstly, let's think about that idea. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct? Holy conduct. Well, how do we understand what holy conduct we ought to pursue if we don't firstly understand just a small piece of the holiness of God? Right? Peter said in 1 Peter, verse, uh, 1 Peter 1, verse 15, he said, Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all of your behavior. So this call to be holy in our behavior find its roots, finds its root in the idea of the holiness of God. So what do we mean when we talk about the holiness of God? Well, one dictionary says that it signifies that which is separated and so in Scripture, when it speaks of this moral and spiritual significance, it means separated from sin and consecrated to God. It's something that is sacred and set apart. God himself is sacred and set apart. He is free from any pollution of sin. Dear friends, that's the first thing that we really have to understand about our God is that there is no sin in him. There's no sin in his presence. He is perfectly holy and righteous. Wayne Grudem defines holiness as meaning that God is separated from sin. And listen to this. He's devoted to seeking his own honor. Separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own honor. So, so we add that idea that if the Lord is holy, what does the holy God seek but his own honor? Because if he sought anything else, he would cease to be holy. So when we consider the holiness of God, we understand that the thrust of all things must be the glory of God because that is his purpose in creation. MacArthur writes, God's holiness defines all his other attributes. And all these attributes qualify his holiness. Now, you, you, you hear that I, I'm leaning on theologians and dictionaries because holiness is such a such a hard thing to define because it's just so it's other you know as Sproul would would say it's just other it's that which we cannot comprehend think about the the vision of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 he saw there the angels crying back and forth to one another 
holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And what happened to Isaiah? He fell down as a dead man. That, that holy presence of God was too much for him to endure. He fell down as though he were dead. And you think about that whole picture. The angels revere the presence of God. They, they cover their eyes and they just cry out back and forth. Holy, holy, holy. And the other, the Lord, the the. Lord God Almighty, the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of His glory. One way that we could, I think, maybe define, kind of to help us understand the holiness of God, is with the word transcendent. It's just other. It's above. It's that which we cannot comprehend. It's so great. So majestic, it's this great majestic moral purity because it's not just something grandiose and great, but it's moral purity. It's righteousness, all of these things coming together. Think about the Lord's holiness. You have to ask the question, what in the life of the church or does the life and the gathering of the church, does it highlight and magnify the transcendent holiness of God? As we gather to worship week in and week out, that is our duty. We're not left to determine how we desire to worship, but we gather to display the transcendent holiness and glory of God. So ask the question, does that mark our lives together as a church, and does that mark our gatherings? Do we have this weighty sense of the glory and righteousness and holiness of God? So that just kind of scratches the surface. We, we could spend week after week considering the Lord's holiness. Books and upon books have been written about it. That kind of scratches the surface, and then we can think about what Peter says. He says, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct. So, so what we see, and we'll see this fleshed out even more in the next term, but what we see is that this holiness of conduct is not just a, a bearing down and, and gritting our teeth to do the right thing. Holy conduct comes from a holy, godly heart. Holy conduct is not accomplished. It is not acted by one who musters up a desire to resist the urge to sin. Because God changes us. He transforms us. So to be holy like God is holy means that everything in us desires to do what is right. It's having godly devotions. And godly devotions drive holy conduct as as the normalized way of life. In 2 Corinthians 1, verse 12, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 12, Paul said, Our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience that we, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. So how has Paul conducted himself in the world? He says, in holiness, in holy conduct, in godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in and by the grace of God in holiness and sincerity. How do you live a holy life, friend? It's by walking in the grace of God. You know, we're talking about conduct and what we do, and that can lead us toward thinking that this is all an internal strength that we must muster, but it's not. Paul says we did this by walking in the grace of God and the power that He supplies, by walking in the Spirit, by walking in and according to the truth. We know that we must strive in this. You think back to 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter says, verse 5, Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence and faith, supply moral excellence and 
supply knowledge and supply self-control and supply perseverance, supply godliness, and on and on. That is supply, supply, supply. Do, do, do. Work, work, work. So this idea that we walk in the grace of God does not get us off the hook of, of supplying diligence and adding effort and strength and striving. But it's knowing that none of this that we strive after can be accomplished in our own strength. Paul told the Thessalonians that this is the will of God, your sanctification. The will of God is that you be holy. And if that's God's will, He is going to work it in you. He works it in, you work it out by the strength that He supplies. The measure of the way of our lives should reflect the awesome holiness of God. The measure of our lives should reflect the holiness of God. Holiness is not merely right conduct. It's not merely right conduct. But it's also not less than right conduct. That's what we have to understand. It's not just that we do the right thing, but it's not less than doing the right thing. You can't be holy and live in a life of sin. But you can do all the right things and have a heart that is black as coal and you are then not holy and pleasing to God. You can go back to MacArthur's comment that God's holiness defines all of his attributes. Holiness should define and should bound our character. It should bound and define everything that we do. So let's think then about the, the joined term to that. What people ought you to be in holy conduct and in godliness. In godliness. You think back again to 2 Peter chapter 1, that passage that just mentioned, where Peter says that we are to supply godliness. We, we define that term there as being good worship, good and pure religion. It's a devout and Godward attitude. That is what must join our holy conduct, a right and pure heart. If Scripture only commanded right conduct, if it only commanded that we do the right things, we would run down the path of moralistic legalism every single day. But that's not what Scripture commands. It says holy conduct and godliness. Scripture doesn't just say godliness, a pure heart where you can slough off all your sin and say, yeah, but you don't know my heart. No, Peter says what you should do, what you should be in holy conduct and godliness. Right action driven by a right and proper heart. Parents, is that what you teach your children? Do you teach your children that it's not just enough to do what mom and dad say when you're grumbling and kicking the dust and complaining and having a bad attitude? You must do the right thing with a God-honoring, parent-honoring attitude. Because otherwise, all you're doing is striving in legalism. Now, we want our children to obey, right? We, we need to make that clear, and we can, I think, tie in some illustration here. You want your child, if you tell your child not to run across the street, whether or not they want to do that, they need to obey. Whether or not our heart is, is with obeying the Lord's command, we must do the right thing. But friend, if you obey the Lord with sin in your heart still, repent of that sin and do the right thing with the right heart next time. You can't just continue on with with sin and evil desire in your heart, you must ask the Lord to grant you repentance and forgiveness that you do the right things with the right motivations. What is the pathway to this godliness? What is the pathway to this good and right and proper religion? Paul writes in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, he wrote to Timothy, great is the mystery of godliness. 
And then there's, there's a colon that kind of says what comes next is going to define this. It's a continuation of this thought. Great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. What is the pathway to godliness? It's rooting your le- yourself and your life in the gospel of Christ. The means of growing in godliness is that you're digging your roots deeper in the good news of the gospel. Is the good news of of the good news, is the good news of the gospel really good news to you? Do you see the depth of your sin? Do you see the awesomeness of the sacrifice of your Savior? Do you see, as the Puritans would say, the sinfulness of sin and the greatness of grace that ought to drive greater godliness. You see the glorious nature of Christ, the one who existed in eternity past. He took on flesh. He was born as a bondservant. He lived a perfect life. He went to the cross. He bore your punishment. He bore your wrath. He went to the grave. He was resurrected on the third day, and he has ascended back to glory where he sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding on behalf of his sheep. Do you see the glory of the Savior? If you want to grow in godliness, you will come over and over and over again to the cross and to the Savior. If you want a heart stirred in godly devotions, you must come often to the cross. You must come often to the gospel. That is the remedy. If you struggle with your heart attitude, if you struggle with not wanting to do what the Lord commands, go to the cross. Go to see the price of your sin. Go to see that the sinless Savior had to be crushed for every sin, the the sins that you commit outwardly, and the sins of your heart. If you want to grow in godliness, go to the cross. Let's press forward to, to verse 12 and consider more of this present preparation as the Lord presses and prepares us for the coming kingdom. Verse 12 says, We are to be looking for and hastening the coming day of God. And I think we can see here that this has the similar feel of of verse 11, that we have outward action wedded to uh, a a work of God in our hearts. Firstly, Peter says that we're to be looking for the coming day of God. We're to be longing and eagerly hoping for the day that Christ returns. In Luke chapter 12, verses 35 and 36, Jesus gives this clear instruction says, be dressed in readiness. Keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Don't you love that picture? Be like slaves who are ready to open the door for their master immediately upon his return. Be those who are looking for the return of Christ, the return of the King. Be like those who don't dread the return of the King because you know that you serve an almighty King, a transcendent King, a holy King, a righteous King, but one who is also good and kind and gracious. Do you live in a way that is always ready for the return of Christ? Or do you find yourself doing things that you would not want to be doing if Christ were to return that instant? We need to be always ready because no one knows the day nor the hour of Christ's return. So be like the slaves who are ready for the return of their master. Think about John, the apostle John, the the apostle whom Jesus loved. He had this glorious vision in the book of Revelation this glorious revelation of God about the future, about the glorious kingdom of Christ. You ever stop to consider what was John's conclusion at the end of that? What, what did John 
come to as he closed the book of Revelation in the inspiration, of course, of the Holy Spirit. Revelation 22, verse 20, John says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Why was that John's conclusion? When when he had seen all of this, why did he conclude, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly? Because he had beheld the glory of Christ. Dear friend, go to the Scriptures. Go to Revelation, but go to all of the Scriptures and behold the glory of Christ. Behold the wondrous power of God. Behold God as the sovereign ruler who works all things according to the purpose and counsel of his will, all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Go and behold the Lord who works all things for the glory of his name. And then see if you don't conclude the same thing that John did. Come, Lord Jesus. As you long for that, let's look at the rest of that statement in verse 12. We're not to be those who are stationed on the rooftops looking to the heavens for for the return of Christ, but we are to be those that Peter says are hastening the coming day of God. I have to tell you, there are some varied opinions as to exactly what Peter means here, but I think I land in agreement with uh, what the Reformation Study Bible, for one, would say. It's that our actions do matter. God has ordained that the second coming of Christ will occur in conjunction with our service to him. As the church becomes more faithful, the return of Christ from our perspective comes nearer. So like we saw with the holy conduct and, and the godliness of heart, you have here wedded outward, outward action, the hastening of the coming day of the Lord, and the heart that looks and longs eagerly for the return of Christ. So friends, we, we look to that day with hope. We strive to bring about that day. We know that that day will come when all salvation and all sanctification is complete. It's a day that we don't know, but we do know that Christ has purchased a people. He has shed his blood to purchase a people to be his possession, and he will not return until every one of those sheep are in the fold. So as we wait for that day, we look eagerly for it, but we hasten its coming by being preachers and proclaimers of Christ. We hasten the coming of the Lord by putting off sin and putting on Christ day after day after day because he will not come until his work is complete. Does our conduct, does our evangelism, or lack thereof, does it hasten the coming of the Lord or does it, in in a sense, delay the coming of the Lord. Obviously, that is the Lord's, and He is sovereign, and He will bring about His purposes. But are we hastening the coming of the Lord, or are we doing nothing but sitting on our hands or sitting on the rooftops looking for His coming and not being active in His service? must pursue holy conduct. We, We see the judgment coming. We pursue holy conduct and godly hearts, and we Strive to hasten the day of Christ's coming as we look eagerly for his return. And that leads us into verse 13. We've seen the pending judgment, the present preparation, and then let's consider the promised kingdom. The promised kingdom. But according to his promise, according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There's two things to see here. The surety of the the return of Christ and what does Christ bring when he comes, the righteousness that will mark his kingdom. Think about the promise of his kingdom, the promise of his kingdom. Isaiah chapter 65 and 66, I think, are likely what the Holy Spirit and what Peter had in mind when he talked about the promise of Christ coming. We can look all the way back to the Old Testament, Isaiah 65 verse 17, 
The Lord says, therefore, behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. And over in chapter 66, Isaiah 66, verse 22, the Lord says, for just as the new heavens and the new earth which I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. The promise of the new heavens and the new earth specifically made by the Lord all the way back in the Old Testament, before even the first coming of Christ. And think about Revelation 21. I think we read verse 2 earlier. Verse 1 of Revelation 21, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. The old things are gone. New things are coming. That, that's the parallel idea of our life in Christ and our future in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away and the new things have come. And when Christ comes again, the old will pass away and the new will come and it will be a place where righteousness dwells. We must understand that this is a promise of God. Dear friends, when you are weary, when life is difficult as it so often is, remember this promise of God that Christ will come again. We must glorify God in this creation, for this creation does display the glory of God. And as we display God's glory in this creation, we must also be longing for the perfect creation, the new heavens and the new earth. Think about that. Do, do the lost people around us, do, do people in general around us, do they see that this world is not our home? Do they see that we long for the return of Christ and his glory and his righteousness that will be on display? Or do we show others that we are constrained by and living for the things of this world? Dear friend, press on. We enjoy God's graces, but we yearn for the coming kingdom. Revelation 21, verse 4. The coming kingdom is where he will wipe away every tear. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. Dear friend, rest in that promise of God. Rest in it. Strive in it. Press on in it. Press on because this promised kingdom is a kingdom where righteousness dwells. MacArthur said here, the new heavens and new earth will be far more than merely just new in time or chronology, but they will be new in character, a realm in which righteousness dwells. So it's not just that they'll pass away and something new will come, but it will be different in character. It will be different in nature, this word dwell speaks of that which remains, something that comes and, and resides in a place and stays in a place. It's dwelling in a fixed location. And so that's what applies to the righteousness of God in the coming kingdom. It will come and it will stay and it will remain. You, you, you think back to the, the first kingdom, to creation, when the Lord created it all and said it was good. In a sense, the Lord's righteousness what was in the earth, but it didn't dwell there. It didn't dwell here in the sense as, as Peter used it because it didn't stay. Because Adam and Eve had the capability, the ability to sin, and they did. And then the world was cursed. But one day, one day, the kingdom will come where righteousness remains where righteousness defines all that we see and know and do. Thank the Lord, praise the Lord that our future home is not like this life. Because the kingdom of righteousness does away with all the hardship. Because every hardship of this world is because of sin coming kingdom where righteousness dwells is where the Lord will wipe away every sin, every tear, and every sorrow. So friends, I ask, do you long for that day? 
do you find yourself pressing on toward that day? Do you look forward to the day that you see Christ face to face? If you do, you must be putting off the flesh. You must be putting on Christ. And again, this is the ultimate climax of these verses that you have the judgment that comes. You have the call of the Lord to be holy, to pursue a godly heart. But we do that all because we press toward the kingdom of righteousness. As a bride readies for her bridegroom, so we must ready ourselves for our king's return. We must conduct ourselves in holiness from God-loving and God-honoring hearts. Look toward that day with eagerness, with longing. It, it puts strength in us. On those days when we're weary, it causes us to press on. Because we know that the Lord has purposes in everything that we go through in this life. But we long for the kingdom of heaven. Press on toward the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. As we read in that text in Philippians chapter 3, that means we count all things of the world as rubbish. We count all the things of this life, life as loss. We put it all aside because we want to be found in Christ. We want to be dressed in His righteousness. We want to know Him. We want to know the power of His resurrection. To do that, we must forget what lies behind and we must strain forward to that which lies ahead. Dear friends, may Christ be our goal. May He be our standard. And may He be our prize. May we press on by the working of God, by the grace of the Son, by the power of the Spirit. May we press on to the praise of His glorious grace. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that You would write Your Word upon our hearts. We're thankful for Your truth and for its encouragement and its exhortation, we thank you that your word presses us onward. We pray that you would help us and cause us to examine ourselves in light of the truth. Pray that we would put off sin, that we would put off all of the flesh, and that we would put on Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help us, encourage us, Help us to long for our Savior. Pray that you would give us grace to run our race and to win the prize. Pray that we would do all things to the praise of your glory. We ask in Christ's name, amen.